How many of you, by the power of the gospel, are not who you once were? That was my old self. That was who I used to be. But by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am not that person anymore. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do something so incredible as to transform you into a completely new being. Far more than mere behavior modification, self-actualization. It cannot possibly be delusion. You are not who you once were. Your very thinking is different. Your whole mind is completely transformed by the Holy Spirit of God when you believe in Jesus Christ. Everything is different. And when they baptize you, they put a dead person in the water and an alive one comes out. A baptism is a funeral followed by a birth seconds later. The old you is gone and you're not who you once were. It's not beautiful. Does that sound good to you, my skeptical friend? Could you use its complete rebirth? Not even a resetting of who you currently are, but a brand new person that's only possible through Jesus Christ. That's, that's what's taught here, and that's what I believe God's going to give you the opportunity to believe upon today as His Holy Spirit draws upon your heart that you may have come in here dead, but you would walk out alive. Would you open up your Bibles with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. Verse 17 through 24, it's incredible teaching. You're going to forget, forgive me while I just geek out over it, because it's so incredible. And then verses 25 through 32 are application. It even opens up with the word therefore. Like Paul preaches this sermon for me. It's an amazing text. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For you are all members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, 
tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The first verse of this text is almost offensive. Look at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. The word Gentile here is not focused on the Gentile ethnicity as in the non-Jewish ethnicity, but in the context of the original recipients. This book is titled what? Ephesians. To whom was it written? The people of Ephesus. One of the wonders of the ancient world was the Temple of Artemis located in Ephesus. It was tremendous. It was quadruple the size of the Parthenon. It took two centuries to build. It was completed in 350 BC. And here are its ruins. It was the center of commerce. It was the center of thought. It was the foundation for the worldview. It was believed that the statue herself and the temple itself came down from heaven. Now, here's what's genuinely funny about that. It only lasted six years. And then a maniac obsessed with fame burned it down. So the myth can't have been that convincing. Did you know that this temple came from heaven? Didn't you install the Wi-Fi routers in it? Yes, I did. <laughs> How does that work? <laughs> like the whole belief system was built on this pagan temple and the particular brand of Artemis worship that took place in, in Ephesus was different, different from what is arguably orthodox Artemis worship. The Roman equivalent to Artemis was Diana and she was known for her chastity. But the brand of Artemis who existed in Ephesus was quite licentious. The worship of Artemis in the temple in Ephesus involved sleeping with temple prostitutes. Radically different brand of the goddess herself, if you will. Artemis was the twin sister of Apollos, the daughter of Zeus, through uh, the daughter of Zeus, through, um, what was her name? I forgot now. Leto. And it was even legend that she helped her mother Leto give birth to her twin nine days after she was born. Fascinating. And the worship of Artemis typically uh, involved like fertility, but this was different uh, as, in, as in like just the, the provisions of the land and animals and things like this. But because the people of Ephesus just really craved lustful, lustful behaviors, they sort of remade Artemis in their own image. Do you see the futility that Paul's talking about? They shaped their own goddess in their own image. They corrupted even the brand of an already corrupt goddess. They took Artemis and made her into someone licentious so that they could get away with what they wanted to do. If your God bends to your will, it's not God. If your God shapes and moves the standard around what you crave or what you lust after, it's not God. It's not a God worth worshiping. The people of Ephesus made their own corrupt brand of Artemis, and Artemis was corrupt to begin with. When the temple was burned down in 350, uh, six years later, same year Alexander the Great was born, interestingly enough. From this point on, the rise of Christianity threatened, threatened things all the more. Like the, the rise of Christianity threatened the very commerce of the city of Ephesus. Because when people repented from Artemis worship, they no longer were going to the temple. When people repented from Artemis worship, they were no longer purchasing the idols. When people 
were, became Christians, they were no longer caught up in this pagan worship. And so the pagan priests who opposed the rise of Christianity did so on far more than spiritual grounds. It was also in their economic best interest to try to curtail the growth of Christianity. But the whole system of thought was futile because Artemis doesn't exist. It was all made up. We've seen that there's nothing there. And it's so funny when I showed my team that GPS sequence. Like, why would you show this thought? Why would you show this shot? There's nothing there. I was like, exactly. That's the point. It's not there anymore. It's gone. It doesn't exist. So all moral assertions made on it are futile. Do you see now what verse 17 means? The futility? This futile thinking goes way beyond just Artemis worship. It's all pagan worship. All moral assertions made upon nihilism are futile. So when he uses the word Gentile, it's not an ethnic term. It's about, it's about the worship of pagan gods and goddesses and, and statements based on atheism, nihilism, meaninglessness, as in nihilism as in we're all going to be annihilated, so it's all pointless anyway. Here's how, here, here's how futility works. And if, if something is, is futile, it's not inherently a bad thing. It just lacks efficacy. Something that, is, something that is futile may not necessarily be an evil thing, but if you worship a goddess who doesn't exist, you're pouring your passions into a vacuum. Futility itself is a waste of your heart, your energy, of your passion. It turns out to be a lie in the end. That's where it crosses the threshold from futility into evil. Where you're doing something that initially is meaningless, that means you're not doing anything meaningful as in fulfilling the gospel, great commission. When you make moral assertions based upon futility, you are what the book of Proverbs refers to as a fool. Proverbs 1.7, if you ask a little Campbell boy, you see a little, little dude with a, with a mohawk sticking up, ask him, the fear of the Lord, and he should respond to you, is the beginning of knowledge. And fools despise wisdom and discipline. This is how education begins. It begins with this. You have some basic fundamental questions of worldview to answer before you can educate upon that foundation. Based on the fear of the Lord, the reverential awe of God, gratitude to him as creator, as the arbiter of that which is moral, the one with the authority to judge and the power to restore when you fall, when you believe upon that, then education can be built upon, upon it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Based on this fear of the Lord, based on a knowledge of the Bible, you're able to answer the most fundamental and basic and important questions that people from other worldviews positively cannot, nor will they ever be able to answer, like, where did we come from? For that matter, where did dirt come from? Where did morality come from? Where is it going? The Christian, with the Word of God, can answer these questions you have your basic presuppositions established. But if you don't have those presuppositions, if you stand over an abyss, you can't account for where dirt came from. Where did matter come from? Well, I don't know. Then why are you making moral assertions? Start from where the dirt came from. Because if you start from the wrong presupposition, all of your conclusions, all of your conclu conclusions are, are rendered in error a priori. So what will, what will the nihilist do? We'll borrow from Christianity and will borrow from Christianity while condemning, a, condemning Christianity. As the presuppositional apologist, you will point that out. 
Christian, this is presuppositional apologetics. You point to the presuppositions espoused by the critic of Christianity. And you show them how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And you show them how their thinking is, verse 17, is futile, self-defeating. You don't know where life came from. You never will. You don't know where dirt came from. You cannot possibly, based on that worldview, you don't know where any of us are going. So you can't make any accurate predictions of the future. You need an authoritative source of truth, one that is not man-made like the temple of Artemis, but one that came from on high, one that was inspired by God. Revelational epistemology, Cornelius Van Til. God revealed himself to us, and so we know how we're able to believe. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the word fool is not an insult. Understandably, over time, the colloquial understanding of the word fool took on a pejorative connotation such that it's an insult for somebody who's just stupid. Call them a fool. That's not really the original intent of that Hebrew word. Rather, in Proverbs, it is somebody whose thinking is darkened. Somebody whose thinking is based upon a falsified presupposition. You don't know where anything came from, but you're making statements as though you do. That's foolish, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Once you know where everything came from, then you can know where everything is going. So the word fool is ubiquitous theme throughout the book of Proverbs, and the fool is not somebody who has a low IQ. The fool is somebody whose thinking is flawed based on his worldview. Because the lens is distorted, whatever he sees is distorted. His eye is perfectly intact. It is his worldview that is corrupted. And so as a result, as a result, because of that falsified worldview, nothing is ever going to, he's never going to come to the right conclusion, even if his IQ is 200 plus. Richard Dawkins, when confronted with Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I've read all of his books and all of his debates, and he always has the same responses, and they're razor sharp. You can tell he like rehearsed them I mean, to perfection in the bathroom mirror. And when he gets asked questions, like he just cannot wait for the person asking it to finish saying the words so that he can just pounce on them with his well-rehearsed answer. And when somebody asked him once, Psalm 14, one, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, immediately he came back. And you can tell he's been using this answer for a while because he used the 1984 version of the NIV. Matthew 5, 22b. Whoever says to his brother, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Here's the thing, Dr. Dawkins. Psalms is written in Hebrew. Matthew's written in Greek. They're different words, Dr. Dawkins. All right, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's the same word fool that is used throughout Proverbs. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And what did Proverbs tell us? The the, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So if you deny God, if you deny the one true God, you are susceptible to radically incorrect conclusions. Rewind the clock. Go back to your very basic presuppositions. The whole paradigm upon which you know things to be true, the whole rubric by which you judge right from wrong, let it be this, the Lord God. The ashes of the empire's past who criticized Christianity have long since scattered. We can see now that all the moral assertions, the center of commerce and culture itself in, in Ephesus is nothing but ruins. It's unrecognizable now from what it once was. But Christianity remains. Would you build your house upon the rock? Base your understanding, your whole worldview upon sound judgment. Have clear answers to the most important questions. And let this be the lens through which you understand truth itself. And let your thinking not become futile. And be wary. Because you don't 
serve an impotent God. And when you, when you face God, you're not facing somebody who lacks the authority to judge. And you're also not going to somebody who lacks the power to restore. You are serving a holy God who has both the authority to judge and the power and the grace to restore. This is not a made-up God. This is not a false statue that we built ourselves in our worship. This is something we've inherited from on high. This is something that God himself revealed to us. So this is why thinking based on anything other than the ultimate source of truth in the universe is futile. We are not darkened in our understanding by, by the futility of Gentile thought in the ancient Ephesus world. Rather, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Do you see that? They have given themselves up to sensuality. They've given themselves over to it. They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Once they practice one kind of impurity, they're going to crave another. After that, they're going to crave another. After that, they're going to crave another. And this, this empty stomach for lust will never be satisfied. The flesh is never satisfied. Lust is never sated. You never hear the point, you know what? I think that's enough corruption. I'm satisfied with that and I'll stay right here and I'll never push the line again. Lust is never satisfied. This is why when an entire culture is bent upon giving itself up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, it's never going to stop. The only thing that can stop it is revival in Jesus Christ. Either an outpouring of God's wrath, let's pray it's not that, or an outpouring of God's spirit and revival, let's pray it's that. So they're darkened in their understanding, they have hardness of heart. They've given themselves up to sensuality. They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And this kind of unmitigated descent into depravity is an indicator of a late stage society. Such a godless culture cannot condemn anything because it condones everything. This was based on the archetype of Sodom and Gomorrah, what Paul was writing in Romans 1, when he describes a futile thinking brought about manifest. When you are left to your own devices, having abandoned God, abandoning the truth of God for a lie, choosing your wickedness, you then suppress the truth of God with wickedness. When a culture just wants to run away from God, they will, like the people of Ephesus, make their own goddess and even make her in the image they want her to be. No, 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 the chaste Artemis will not do for us here at Ephesus. We want an Artemis who is licentious. And so that's what they created for themselves. And then they worshiped what they created. They worshiped the creation rather than the creator. They thought themselves wise, but they became fools. Why? Because their wisdom was built upon futility. Listen to Romans chapter one. You'll see how it was about Sodom and Gomorrah, but it applies to Ephesus and it bears an eerie similarity to today as well. Listen to this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They know the truth. They know that God is real, but they suppress that truth with wickedness. It's about wanting to sin, wanting to have license to sin. And so for that reason, they suppress the truth of God. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Do you see the similarities with Ephesians here? And their foolish hearts were darkened. Again, a direct parallel with Ephesians. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, like Artemis, and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So these are the fruits of futility, an insatiable descent into depravity with a continual lust for more. And then comes verse 22. And this could be argued the most beautiful sequence of seven letters in a space in the whole of the English language. Look at it, verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Your old self, there it is. That is something unique to Christianity. Within Eastern mysticism, time itself is understood totally differently. Time itself is thought to be circular and cyclical. And you can live a life that is morally good, moral based on what standard, we don't really know. But then even though you're living a pretty good moral life because of something you've done in your former life, you could, because of karma, be bombarded with negative consequences that have nothing to do with what you did in this life. You are, you are never done with the old self within Eastern mysticism, even after you die. This idea of the old self being put, to death, being put to death and being created a brand new person, this is unique to Christianity. The idea that your old former way of life, verse 22, is corrupt through deceitful desires may be put away. Think about it. You, you are no longer the person you once were. When you think about your former sinful way of life, you say, that's not who I am. Before you were a Christian, your life was corrupted by sinful desires, and this passage calls you to kick that corrupted and expired version of yourself out of the conversation. Why? Look at the last two words of verse 22. This is so, so countercultural, especially here in Seattle. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires. Can we talk about those two words? Because the two of them, immediately adjacent to one another, presents a teaching that is radical in Seattle. Modern Seattle, Seattle culture, like we have no concept of a deceitful desire. We don't know what a deceitful desire is. In our culture, in Seattle, anything you desire is a good thing. Whatever you crave, that defines you as a person. What do you, whatever you lust for, well, that was written into your DNA. And we are merely dancing to the tune of our DNA. We almost lack free will. If we crave it, we must have it. Pleasure is our God. If it is a desire that you have in the marrow of your bones, it's something you gotta go get. And anybody who tries to stand in the way of it just doesn't understand you as being intolerant. All desires are good. If you crave it, go for it, and we'll celebrate you as you do. We have no concept of a deceitful desire. I'll give you an example of culture celebrating something, being required to celebrate something, there was actually a deceitful desire that leads to destruction. If you are a man and you married a woman and you made a promise before God and witnesses to be faithful to her forever, you fathered children with her, 
But then a desire in your heart for another man overwhelms you. And so you leave this woman and you marry that man and then the court is gonna favor you and you gather the children and you pose for the photo and you and this other man stand with your children and you pose for the photograph and all of your Facebook friends fall all over themselves to virtue signal so stinking hard to look like they're super, super enlightened. Look at the beautiful family you've created. That is a direct quote. I've seen this with my own eyes. The mother who carried the children in her body is forbidden from the photo shoot. Talk about disempowering women, are you kidding me? And so because you had the desire to leave your wife for a man, you bring your children with you, you pose for the photograph, and all of us are required to celebrate you, and if we don't, we're bigots. Do you see? And you can even change the scenario. Forget even just leaving your, leaving your wife for another man. That's something that Seattle culture will celebrate and call you heroic for, being your truest self for. If you leave your wife for another woman, that's equally sinful, man. But do you see how we'll fall all over ourselves and all of, your, all of your friends will just jump on Facebook as fast as they possibly can to show how virtuous they are for celebrating you, abandoning the woman that you promised God and witnesses you would be faithful to forever? Is it possible that that desire was actually deceitful? Is it possible that like that desire was actually a trap set by the enemy, a rusted hook embedded in bait set by the enemy to reap destruction upon this poor woman who is abandoned and alone without her children and thought a bigot for resenting the situation? Is it possible that that desire was deceitful? This is what our modern culture has no concept of. It's a radical, radical notion to think not all desires are good. Verse 22 teaches that some desires are deceitful. Some desires are traps set by the enemy and they reap destruction. Here's an alternative. Look at verse 23. All right, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Once again, you see these clear parallels between Ephesians and Romans. The word of God is cohesive. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Man, some of you, at the beginning of the sermon, I asked you to raise your hand if you, by the gospel, have had your whole way of thinking transformed and hands went up all over the room. We know, you see your reflection in this verse. You see, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, you're like, yep, that is exactly what happened to me. That's exactly what happens when the sinful desires are kicked to the side and the Holy Spirit of God comes in. Look at verse 24. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
by the power of the gospel, you put on a completely new self because you are, not, you are not just reset, you are reconstructed. The old you is dead, the new you is alive. You are not who you were. The new self is, according to verse 24, created after the likeness of God in true, that is actual righteousness, and get ready for it, holiness. This word holiness is way out of fashion. But we at Highlands Community Church are bringing it back into style, amen? Look at verse 25, therefore, Right? Therefore comes from the Greek word dio, which translates on which account? Because we have put off the old self and are putting on the new self, put away falsehood and let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Because every member of a small group at Highlands Community Church who is a Christian and has put off the old self and has put on the new self, you can be raw and authentic with each other. You can, be, you can speak to one another with a kind of candor and honesty that would make an AA meeting blush. Why? Because everybody in that group knows what it's like to be dead and then alive in Christ. And every now and then want to step back into your coffin. Every now and then have the old self from you, from your former way of life, come back again. Set aside falsehood. Speak truthfully with your neighbor. If you're trying to show your small group how well you have your whole act together, if you're trying to go to small group and impress everybody with your perfect righteousness, you are missing out on the fellowship of the body of Christ. It says that we are all members of one another. Remember last week we tried to illustrate this through harmony and I tried to sing in harmony and I, I failed. I was trying to illustrate how we're all members of the same body. This may be you and this may be me, but we are both members of the same body. We are the body of Christ. So set aside falsehood. Don't play the church game. In a world where people post the 72nd draft of a selfie that they took and they bring the hairline down and the gut in and the chin up and post that one, doesn't it sound nice to have like authentic, raw community where people are actually real with each other? This is what this beautiful verse is calling for. Set aside falsehood. Check your ego at the door. We are all the body of Christ here. Everybody in your small group knows what it's like to be dead in sin and then made alive in Christ. So n there's, no, there's no reason to try to impress people. Set aside falsehood. Have candor and honesty with one another. I noticed last week, some of our high school guys came to church wearing tuxedos. And they're, they're inadvertently doing the exact same thing that my college group did. They began, uh, for some reason, I don't know, one or two of the high school guys said, you know what, we are, we are showing up to church not dressed well enough. Nobody has ever asked them to dress up. But these high school guys have all said, you know, we need to dress up for church. And so they've taken it to the extreme. They're wearing tuxedos to church. When I was in college, we did the exact same thing. It's because when, you, you know, when, I, when I was in college and I, you know, I was living on, my, living on my own for the first time in my life, you know, like laundry was like a very rare occasion. You know, like a, the, the, the college freshman guy waits until things are just really bad to intervene at all. So you wear the same hoodie nine days in a row. You go to church in it, right? And so one of the guys in our group, John Riley, said, this cannot be. Wear the absolute best clothes that you have. 
to church next Sunday. And we all said, yes, let's do it to the glory of God. I was a music major. And as a music major, I had to be ready to perform all the time. And that meant that we had tuxedos, the different kinds of tuxedos given the different kinds of concerts you'll do. If it's like chamber music, you'll dress like this. If it's like a, if it's a symphony orchestra, you dress another way. If you're the conductor, you, you'll wear tails. So I showed up to church in a tuxedo with tails. And we had an accountability group on Wednesday nights, and we'd take over the conference room that the staff would use during the week. And we started noticing that some guys were, were, were not being faithful in attending worship on Sunday. They were just coming on Wednesday night for the college group. And there was a guy in the group named Ray. Ray was colossal. He was huge. The fist the size of my head. He was featured in Southern Living Magazine because Martha Stewart stopped by this restaurant in Tallahassee and saw him serving hot dogs. And so he was in an article. Ray was in my group. And we had a rule that said, if you missed church on Sunday, that Wednesday night, you would stand up next to the conference table and then Ray would go down the line and then punch everybody in the face who wasn't at church. I got punched in the face by Ray. Our group dwindled after that. We eventually stopped doing that. I'm not advocating that, by the way. High school guys in the room, don't do that. But do continue the kind of authenticity that I see because I love that. I think I can picture the guys around that table. All 12 of us are in ministry in some form or another. I can't help but think that God was teaching us the beauty of this right here, just being, setting, setting aside falsehood, speaking truthfully with your neighbor. That's when you get raw, authentic community. Because if you do a really good job of crafting a mask that's impressive and people bond with that, they're not really bonding with you. They're bonding with the mask. They're bonding with the artifice that you've crafted. So instead, set aside falsehood, speak truthfully with your neighbor because we're all members of one body, the body of Christ. Look at verse 26. The first, the first few words are so mind-blowing to me. Be angry and do not sin. Okay, look at the first two words. Be angry. Amen. To the glory of God, be angry. And do not sin. The confusion comes when you conflate anger with sin. Anger is not necessarily sin, but I, for one, have sinned in anger. Has anybody else sinned in anger before? Look at this verse. Look at, where it, look at what it teaches us. Be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. Listen to, listen to Jesus get angry in Mark chapter 3. And look at the fruits of his anger. This is so, so cool to me. When I get angry, usually I have to go back and apologize for stuff. But when Jesus got angry, people were healed. Look at this. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Look at this. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. In Jesus's anger, people were healed. Aren't you grateful then that Jesus got angry? Anger is not sin necessarily, but in our anger, we can be more susceptible to sin. Sometimes you're not angry and you should be. Sometimes at the side of injustice in the world that is in your power to rectify, you look at something and if your pulse doesn't get up, if it doesn't make you angry, check your heart because you should be angry. 
There are other times, though, where in anger, we can lose all self-control and we can do damage. And Jesus saw that the money changers were corrupting the temple and trying to monetize Old Testament worship itself. He fashioned a whip out of cords and then he drove them out of the temple and overturned the tables. He fashioned a whip out of... Jesus made arts and crafts while he was mad. Like, think about this. If I get angry and I try to do arts and crafts, it's not gonna turn out well. But Jesus, in his anger thoughtfully, meticulously fashioned a whip. And I have reason to believe that that whip was perfect. And then, in thumos, the Greek word for his particular brand of anger, he drove out injustice. Anger is not sin. Be angry and do not sin. See what I, isn't that so profound? It's just like a few words, but it's so mind-blowing. Be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Look at verse 27. And give no opportunity to the devil. That's an incredibly loaded statement theologically. A few weeks ago, we prayed the Lord's Prayer. and We asked God to deliver us from temptation, deliver us from evil. All right, would you, would you consider this for a minute? Like, apply this filter of give no opportunity to the devil to your eyes every day. As you do something, ask the question, is this giving an opportunity to the devil? This may not be sin in and of itself, but does it open the door to sin? Have I created a step stool for the enemy to come in? Have I given the devil an opportunity? And then, look at verse 28, because there's a testimony in it. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him do labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Do you see the testimony that's in that verse? In the beginning of the verse, he was a thief, taking things from people. By the end of the verse, he is giving things to people. See the testimony? The old self is dead and gone, and there's somebody, you're a brand new person in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. May I contextualize this to include our thumbs too? That let no corrupting talk come out of your thumbs, that would have made no sense about 15 years ago. You know exactly what I mean, don't you? Does, does verse 29 apply to the way we conduct ourselves on social media too? Right? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. All right, so if you need to take out your phone, and review all your social media posts. If you got to do some deleting, you do it to the glory of God, okay? Nobody's going to judge you. In fact, they'll praise God and they might take their phones out too. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, does your Bible say all? If it doesn't say all, throw it away. We'll get you a proper Bible, okay? All bitterness, and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Does anybody's Bible have like a footnote or a parenthetical that accommodates somebody who has written something politically stupid on Facebook? Does anybody's Bible have that footnote included? No? Does, does it make an exception? Are you allowed to be malicious towards somebody who has different political views from you? Yeah, mine, mine doesn't say that either. All malice, all bitterness, all wrath and, and anger and clamor and slander be put away. All of it. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
Now, to my friend who's not a Christian yet, please don't listen to verses 31 and 32 apart from the preceding verses. Because you can look at verses 31 and 32 and say, ah, that's my moral lesson for the day. That's the motto I'm going to take with me. I like that. I'm going to pluck that from Christianity and I'm going to live it out. I'm going to feel better about myself. Don't feel better about yourself because your current self is the dead self, is the old self. Your current self is headed towards hell. Welcome to Highlands Community Church. You could do this verse perfectly. You could be kind to one another and still go to hell. You could be tenderhearted and your tender heart could go to hell. You, you, you could forgive people, but if you haven't been forgiven in Christ, you are missing the point of verses 31 and 32. These are written to Christians. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you're not saved, if you haven't put the old self off and put the new self on, verses 31 and 32 will do you no good. You'll be, you'll be a nice person, but that's it. You need to be a new person in Christ. What of, what of this teaching in verse 30? Grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We can, we can sometimes disagree over this verse. We can have competing interpretations of what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit of God, and we can miss the second clause in the verse. I do want to address what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit, but can I start with the second half? Because it's a beautiful promise, and there may be somebody here who's like, this is the one thing you just needed to hear from the sermon today. Did you see it? By the Holy Spirit? by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit of God seals you. He is God's mark upon you. His irrevocable seal upon your soul, whereby God looks at you the day of judgment and says, this one is mine. Sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. You may have grown up under a teaching that says, if you just slip into bad behaviors and you, you give way to temptation and you rebel from God for a little bit, you may revoke the promises of God. You may lose your salvation. But this verse says that you were sealed not as long as you behave well, but you were sealed for the day of redemption. What is the day of redemption? That's the day that we're redeemed. That's the day where we're made perfect and glorified alongside Christ. We live now, Christians, in the now and not yet. Saved now, but not yet perfected. That will be me in heaven one day. Until that day, I am sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. Until that coming day of redemption. Do you see what I mean? We can miss, miss one of the most beautiful promises, the security of salvation, Right, the, the, uh, the, by the glory of God, we can see that the, the perseverance of the saints, the preservation of the saints written into this verse because we like to quibble over interpretations of the first clause. Now, may I so quibble? I'll humbly posit my interpretation of this verse. How many, how many parents in the room, kids were little, you could hear a scuffle happen, you could hear a shout, but you could always tell no, 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 they're playing, this is pretend, this is not a big deal, this is not worth getting up from the Seahawks game, over. You didn't hear words, you couldn't actually, but by the tone of the <laughs> you could just tell, this is not, this does not require my intervention. I just threw the walls of your house, by the tone of the murmuring, you knew whether or not it was time to intervene. How many of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about, Right? But then every now you may hear, you may hear an ow or an ah. You may hear a tone of voice that you don't usually hear in your children. And then you get up immediately from the game and you go, you run up the stairs because you could just tell. I have one of those experiences a couple of weeks ago. 
You know, we were watching football, and everything's great. Chips and salsa are amazing. And I heard, I heard, ow, but it wasn't like a, I stepped on a Lego, ow. It was like, I just got punched by my brother, and my heart hurts, ow. Run up the stairs and get between the two of them. And to hear one of my sons, whom I love with all my heart, speak to my other son, whom I also love with all my heart, and the two of them, I want them to be close forever. I want them to be groomsmen in each other's weddings. I want them to be close forever. To hear one of my sons, whom I love, speak harshly to another one of my sons, whom I love, made me cry. They weren't crying, they were just mad. But it grieved me to see my sons, whom I love, in conflict with each other like this, we speak to each other that way in this family. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You're both God's children. You were sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit, both of you. So you let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, children of God. You be kind to one another, Christians. Be tender-hearted, Christian. Forgive one another, Christians, as God in Christ forgave you. It grieves the Holy Spirit of God when God's children don't abide by verses 31 and 32. It grieves the Holy Spirit of God when we, though we've been made alive, pretend like we're dead and act like the old self again. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God who is in you, who is your seal for the day of redemption. Redemption, does that sound good, my skeptical friend? Is that why you're here? My skeptical friend, my curious friend. I know you haven't found life in anything else. I know that no substance on this planet has brought you one iota of life. I know that you haven't found life in pleasure. I know you haven't found life in any of the nihilistic philosophies that exist. I know you haven't found life in any relationship with a fellow flawed human being. I know you haven't found life anywhere. And this idea of redemption, this idea of like the old self being put away Becoming a brand new person today by the gospel of Jesus Christ? If that sounds good to you, today is your day. Today is the day that you put away your futile thinking. Instead of chasing after impurity after impurity, never being satisfied, always lusting for more, instead of that futility, instead of, instead of that, you could put that old self to death and be raised to walk as a new creation. No longer sinning, but now a part of the body of Christ. Here are the verses I want you to pray with me. If God's drawing upon your heart today to be saved, I want us to pray John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believed in him would not die, but have everlasting life. And I want us to pray Romans 3.23, whereby we just confess to God, we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You confess your sin before him. And then Romans 6.23, the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And then I want us to pray John 14.6, the same Bible verse that inspired the last song we sang. Jesus himself answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So tell Jesus that you believe him. 
Tell Jesus you believe what he said was true, that he is the way, he is the truth. There's nothing else, no, 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 nothing else is true, only Jesus. He is the life, there's no life in anybody but Jesus. Jesus said it, so you tell him you believe him. And Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, which means he's the boss, he is in charge, your sin has to go because Jesus is Lord. And we apply that verse quite directly here at Highlands Community Church. We'll say those words together, which 1 Corinthians 12 says is only possible by the Holy Spirit of God. You believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. Welcome to your funeral. Put aside the old self. Put on the new self, being made like Christ. Today is the day that you come alive. Prepare to be transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray with me these Bible verses out to God. God, I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life. I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess, God, that the wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Jesus, that you are the way I believe that you are the truth. I believe that you are the life. And I know there's no way I can come to God the Father except through you, Jesus. And so right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it. Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. Put away my old sinful self. Make me new by the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and worship with us? Some of us for the very first time, brand new believers in Jesus Christ.